everybody, Pastor Chris here. Thanks for listening to our Market Street Podcast. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope today's message helps you in your walk with Jesus. For more ways to connect, visit us at marketstreetchurch.org. Everybody have a happy Thanksgiving? Good, 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 good. So uh, just as you know, Thanksgiving, right? Just get everything prepared, get everything ready to go. You got to get the table set, uh, everything in order, places and things that need to be set on the table, all the sides, all the things, all the fixings, right? Good stuff. Everybody have a good, good, good things presented at your table? Okay, good, good, good. So just like every table, right, you have to set the table in order for the, the main dish to be served. And for Thanksgiving, that main dish is what? What is that main dish? Turkey, the turkey, right? So, uh, so from many of you, maybe some of you, and be like, no, we do hamburgers, we do steak, we do ham. I don't know. Maybe that's for you. But uh, for, most, for the most part, turkey is the main dish. And so, but before that main dish, you know, is ready to, to go, ready to be served, everything has to be set, everything has to be prepared. So over the next few weeks, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what we call silent nights, silent nights. And silent nights means that there were 400 years, 400 years of silent nights, of silent nights. Uh, what, what, what does that mean? That means 400 years of silence. That means there was no written word, so nothing recorded. So the time between in your Bible, if you open up your Bible, mine has like a page, okay, right here. So between uh, the, the Old Testament uh, prophet Malachi and the beginning of our New Testament, Matthew, I have a page, and maybe in your Bible you have a page. There's 400 years of silence, meaning, again, no written word. And no prophetic voice. No written word and no prophetic voice. Now, what does that mean? That means what Paul talks about it a little bit. He doesn't call it 400 years of silence, but in the theological term for it as intertestamental period, right? Intertestamental period. Uh, while you were dozing off and falling asleep on the tryptophan of your turkey, I was reading books on intertestamental period, and I was dozing off from that, okay? So I'm going to try to take these books that I read and these podcasts that I listened to over the last couple of weeks and try to make it applicable uh, to your life. But it's really just about 400 years of silence, no written word, no prophetic voice. In other words, nothing that they could take tangible from God, 400 years of that, nothing that they've heard from God, whether, whether it was written down or spoke by a prophet. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians 4, 4, uh, 4, 4, he says, but when the fullness of time came, but when the fullness of time, so he's, re, he's referring to this 400-year time period uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, right, under the law, under the law. He says, so that, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters, and so this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, there is a time period that during this time, when, and when that time was fulfilled, God sent his son. That God was, in other words, God was setting the table. God was preparing the table for the main dish to be served. And that's Jesus, right? And so when that time was fulfilled, he came and he came to redeem those, to pay back our sin debt that we had. He, he came to redeem that. And he says that he came to receive us as adoption, as sons and daughters. And, the, and if you've received Jesus, you are now adopted into the family of God. Jesus said it another way. Jesus told Nicodemus at night, Nick at night, he said, hey, you must be born again. You must be born again. So Jesus says you need to be reborn. And the apostle Paul says, hey, listen, let me give you maybe in terms that you can understand you can be adopted. You can be adopted as sons and daughters of a loving heavenly father. Okay? Now, 
here's the other interesting thing about this 400 years of silence. Um, it was talked about. It was presented. It was given to um, a guy by the name of Daniel. Anybody ever heard of Daniel before in the Bible? Okay, all right. You should read your Bible if you don't know anything about Daniel. Okay. Um, Daniel was given um, on a couple different instances um, some dreams that he needed to interpret. And Daniel, in his dreams that he needed to interpret, interpret begins to explain what happens over a time period. And, and this was, again, Daniel was written in some like 530-something B.C., okay, 530-something B.C. Uh, but God gives him visions way, way beyond that and even to the point of Jesus's first advent of the coming of Jesus, okay? And so this is what, is, this is sort of the image, and the, the, it's, I don't really love these image, this images that I found, to be honest with you, uh, poor images of what Daniel's dream was, okay? Um, but he begins to have a vision, which is essentially was Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, okay? And he, they, nobody could figure it out, and so Daniel, you know, was given, you know, some revelation by God to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, and so he, so he begins to you know, explain to, to Nebuchadnezzar and recorded in the book of Daniel about what was going to happen. And so you have, you know, you hear about the Babylonian, you know, the Babylon, the empire who took you know, God's people into captivity, you know, they were exiled out of their homeland, brought into Babylon. Daniel was one of those guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were also some of those, those people that were brought into Babylonian captivity. And then you have, after that, uh, you have the, the Medo-Persian army, which we, so, we also read about. If you, if you read the, the, the narrative of Esther in our Old Testament, it's about the, the rule of, of the Persian Empire. And then, it, then the scriptures, as far as the written scriptures, go dark. They go dark. But it's not that, they, that God is inactive, because here's the, here's the point. Even when it, God seems silent doesn't mean that God isn't working. Let me say this again. Even when God seems silent doesn't mean that God isn't working. Okay? And he was. And so we see in Daniel that, that he also you know, brought to power uh, another empire, which was, which was Greece. And then, and then after that, Rome, which is when, which is when Jesus' uh, narrative and the story and the life of Jesus and the time of Jesus on earth was, uh, they were they were in, in rule, and in, you you already know that. But here, so so from, from like the the the, the belly okay, to the knees. So from the belly to the knees in our little graphic here is that four hundred years that there was again no prophet and nothing recorded, no prophet speaking. And nothing recorded that we have in our Bibles. This intertestamental period, 400 years, where no prophet, no written word, but it didn't mean that God was inactive. God was still working. And the practical application for us today is when God is silent, when you don't hear from God, when you feel like God has forgotten about you, it doesn't mean that he's not working. As a matter of fact, he did a lot. And let's, let's look at it, okay? So here's what happens. Okay, Daniel, Daniel records us. He says, and after this, so he's describing, you know, so here's another sort of a interpretation of a vision, okay? And so you have the statue, right? And then there's another uh, vision of describing some of these kingdoms. And it says, and he describes this one kingdom, the, uh, the kingdom from, the, from Greece. He says, and after this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard. So he's describing this king uh, the, of, of the Greeks that's going to rise up and he describes him like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. So he's describing, you know, this, this, this person, okay? And he describes him like a leopard. Reason is because this, this king moved quickly. This king moved fast and dominated, dominated, just like Michigan dominated Ohio State. Can I get a, can I get a go blue? All right. Okay, good. All right, here we go. All right, I just want to make sure the tryptophan isn't still in, in your system. Okay, okay. So this, this king, this king dominated, dominated, dominated. And so, so he was like a leopard. He moved fast, went through, 
covered a lot of the known world, okay? So here's also what, what Daniel says ab about this king. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches. So this, is, uh, this was this king rising up out of, you know, Persian rule is what, is what Daniel's, you know, seen in this, in this. He says, then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will stir up the entire empire against the realm of Greece. And then it says this in verse 3. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Now, who is this person? Who is this king? Well, here's who we know from history. This is a man by the name of Alexander III. Alexander III. Maybe you know him as Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. So think about this. Hundreds of years before the rise of Alexander the Great, even though I don't like calling him Alexander the Great because there's nothing great about him, and there's only one who's great. Alexander the Third was written about in Daniel. They say there was going to be a king and he's going to do, and he's going to have dominion, and he's going to move like a leopard, and he's going to control a lot of the known world, and he's going to rise, and he's going to do whatever he pleases. And you know what history teaches us? That's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. Now, Alexander III was also the, the figurative person for a culture that um, didn't last long. So, so his, his reign and rule, Alexander III, didn't last long. As a matter of fact, it, it, his amazing accomplishments happened within just a short period of time, a 13-year period. He started, uh, took over from his father, Philip of Macedon. He, he took over the, the, the rule and reign uh, of, of the Greek empire, and he only survived. He only lived during that time for for 13 years, okay? But he moved fast and he conquered a lot. So he died at, at age 33. But what still exists today and what still is you know, impacted today is what's called uh, Hellenism. Hellenism. Hellenism it was a, is a Greek way of life, a Greek way of life. So even though his empire didn't last very long, 13 years, he didn't rule king very long, his way of thinking and his way of life did. As a matter of fact, he was, his, his father um, saw something special in him and, and others uh, saw something special in him um, that they, he brought in a philosopher, maybe you've heard of this guy, Aristotle. He brought in Aristotle to tutor and to teach uh, young Alexander III about the Greek way of life, the Greek way of life. And, and the Greek way of life, and, and Aristotle was a student of Plato, right? And Plato was a student of uh, Socrates, right? Or if you watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Socrates. Okay. Socrates. Anyways. That was lame. Okay, all right. So Hellenism, Greek way of life, okay? What is that? What is that? Well, here's what they, and still, we're still impacted by it today, okay? Things like architecture, okay? Uh, they, they build, establish incredible, beautiful architecture. It's still things that we uh, marvel at today. Athletics, the Olympics, okay? Athletics, the Olympics. Uh, theater, Theater, so they, they were the ones that created and, and invented theater. You see, what, what they did was that they changed the culture in a sense where family dynamics or, or within a community dynamic, uh, that they had to figure out how to entertain each other. But the Greeks came along and said, hey, let, let, listen, let's do this. Let's get professionals professional entertainers to entertain the people. And so people would, would do that. They were like, we don't have to figure out how to, you know, make up a game for our kids or do whatever, a family game with our family, even though, you know, those things can be fun. They said, we're going to create, and we're going to create professionals to entertain. And so that's where they, they created the theater. Um, their art, their art still impacted Greek way of life. Their education, their education. Uh, one of the things that the Greek culture did was, um, instead of having one teacher 
teach all the subjects, and so they were sort of just average or subpar at all of the subjects. They, they came up with the idea of having one teacher that excelled in one particular subject. And so we actually still do that to this day. Your kids, your grandkids, they go from one class study, so they have a teacher that teaches them math, and then they move on to the next teacher that teaches them, you know, literature or whatever, and then the next teacher, they teach them science. And so the Greeks came up with that educational system. Government, government, they, they created what, even what, uh, the, the democracy, they actually were the ones that created uh, the, our first uh, system of democracy uh, within, within their, their rule and reign. And, and, and these are just a few, and they came up with a common language, they, a common language. So what Alexander III did was, is that everywhere as he conquered the world, from Greece to all the way to India, Again, such an amazing accomplishment in a 13-year period. He began to infiltrate all of these different Greek way of life, all of this Hellenism mindset. The Hellenism, uh, in a sense, too, was, was st really started to steer away from community and, and even put more focus on the individual. As a matter of fact, we, we, we remember, you know, we have, have uh, some memory of some Greek gods, right? We can remember some of the Greek gods. But they actually got to a place where they were seeing themselves as greater than gods. That they were seeing, they were seeing themselves as, as humans that even more powerful with their intellect and their knowledge and their reasoning uh, abilities, uh, their wisdom, that they were even greater than God. So this is sort of the Greek way of thinking, this Hellenism type of thinking. Well, Alexander III begins to move his way quickly through the known world. And he comes to, and this is recorded uh, in Zechariah. Zechariah also talks about uh, Alexander the Great or Alexander the Third, And he talks about it and he, he describes uh, while Alexander is moving through, you know, the, wor the world and conquering. And here's what he says. He says, for Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mud of the streets. Next verse, verse 5. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will wreath in great pain. Also Ekron because her hope has been ruined. Moreover, the kings will perish from Gaza and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. So this is describing this king, Alexander, who's going to go. And these are not small cities. Gaza, Ashkelon, you know, uh, Akron. These were not Tyre. These were not small cities that this king came in with his army and he dominated them. This is showing what Alexander did as he's moving along. And then it's showing who's next to be, to be destroyed. Who's next to be ruined. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And here's what happened. As Alexander is approaching Jerusalem, because he's now conquered Tyre, and he's now conquered Gaza, and Akron, and, and all of these other great you know, cities, he's now approaching Jerusalem. And I want to pause for a second, and I want to read to you Something that a Jewish historian wrote about when, when Alexander approached Jerusalem and his, his own men, Alexander's own men, were surprised at his reaction. Now, who is Josephus? Josephus is a, was a Jewish historian. He was also a Pharisee. He was not, he, he actually lived around the time, you know, of like, you know, first century, you know, when the church was beginning to rise. As a matter of fact, Josephus was present in around the time, and he wrote about it, when Jesus's half-brother James um, was, was killed. Josephus wrote about it. It's some of the evidence that we have of proof uh, of, of Jesus outside of a biblical narrative. There's extra biblical narrative. So Josephus, so Josephus as a historian wrote about in his, in his writing called the Antiquities, wrote about a, an encounter that Alexander had with the high priest Jadua in Jerusalem. And I, I, let, me just, let me just read it to you. Um, and he, it, it goes like this. It says, after that, so after uh, uh, Jadua realizes that Alexander's moving quickly and coming towards, you know, uh, Jerusalem, after that, God spoke to the high priest 
Jado in a dream that he should take courage and adorn Jerusalem and open the gates. The rest of the people should appear in white garments. And so God's speaking to this high priest, uh, Jew, Jerusalem's high priest, telling him, you know, don't be afraid. And as a matter of fact, this is what I want you to wear, okay? And he says, the rest of the people should appear in white garments. But the priest should meet Alexander. This is, again, this is from Josephus. The priest should meet Alexander in robes of their priesthood without fear because God would protect them. When Alexander was not far from Jerusalem, the high priest went outside the walls of the city in a procession with the other priests and the multitudes of citizens. Alexander's army was expecting him, Alexander's army was expecting him to plunder the city. But when he saw the multitudes at a distance in white garments and the priest in fine linen, the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing, Alexander approached by himself, showing respect to their God and saluted the high priest. Those who come with Alexander thought that he had lost his senses. Finally, one asked him how, when all others adorned him, he should adorn the, the high priest of the Jews. Alexander replied, I did not adore him, but that God who had honored him with his high priesthood. Then here's what Alexander says. I saw this very person in a dream in the very white clothes when I was in Macedonia. And I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia. And I saw this man, the high priest, who had exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea. He would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians. I have not seen any other so clothed that way since then. And now seeing this person and remembering that vision in my dream, I believe I bring this army under the divine conduct and shall conquer Darius, destroy the power um, of the Persians, and that all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. Then he gave the high priest his right hand and came into Jerusalem. And Josephus actually goes on to say that, that uh, Alexander offered a sacrifice with the instruction of the high priest to offer a sacrifice to Yahweh. And then here's what happens. Josephus re records. And when the book of Daniel showed him where Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, Alexander supposed that himself was the person intended. The next day, Alexander asked them what they would want to grant him. And the high priest asked that they might enjoy the laws of their forefathers and might pay no taxes, which is a good request to ask. On the seventh year, and Alexander granted what they desired. That's from Josephus of an encounter with Alexander with the high priest. And he was shown Daniel. Hey, this is you. Written 200 years before you came and took rule and reign over your kingdom. Yahweh talked about you. Now, in one section, he called him a leopard, which is probably the section that the high priest showed him. In another section, God called him a goat. It's probably not what he showed <laughs> Alexander. And then look what it says in Zechariah. Then look what it says in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, one day your king will come. His name is Jesus. And he will come to you. And he is righteous and endowed with salvation. And then it gives a prophecy of what Jesus fulfilled in his time on earth. Humble, he comes humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Hundreds of years before Jesus entered the scene, this was written 
about him. Written about him. And then Daniel records this. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom, this is talking about Alexander, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out towards the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded because his sovereignty will be removed and given to others besides them. This is probably something that the high priest didn't show him either. But God says as quickly as his kingdom and authority rose, I sat him down. And those of you, God's people, can rejoice and shout for joy because our king did come. Our king did come. But hundreds of years, hundreds of years, this is so important, hundreds of years before Alexander rose and fell. It was prophesied that Jesus would come and rule and reign and he still rules and he still reigns and he's still sovereign. Alexander died at 33 and he stayed dead. Jesus died at 33, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. Okay, all right, the boring stuff is over. Let's get to the, the stuff that's more applicable to us, okay? Here's what we can learn from this part of the 400 years of silence. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. Hopefully you gained that as we looked at what Daniel wrote, what God gave vision to Daniel, and what, da- what actually took place, what actually came into fruition, that just like God said this would happen, this is exactly what happened. Here's what you need to know. Your Lord and your God, he is sovereign over all. And you can either join in with what God is doing, or you're going against the grain. Alexander, you can, you can join in. And he had every opportunity, I think, in that moment. I think that was his moment. His moment to realize, wait a second. When he was shown Daniel, look, this was written 200 years ago, Alexander. This is you, isn't it? And Alexander, in that moment, had an opportunity to say, yeah. I think that it is. Maybe I should bow a knee to him and not view myself as a God, which is ultimately what Alexander thought. He thought he was a God man. He was unstoppable. There was no, 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 nothing could come up against him. So he thought he was God. He took ownership of the fact that he was a Lord and sovereign and, 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 and his dominion was, was his. But listen, All he was, was a pawn in the story of God and what God was doing, what God was doing. Now, Saul also came across Jesus when when, when, when Saul met Jesus for the first time. And Jesus makes a statement to Saul, because Saul of Tarsus, Saul was was a persecutor of the church, right? Okay, persecuted the church. So Saul comes across Jesus and Jesus says, listen, Saul, you're going against the grain. You're doing your own thing. You're doing what you think is right in your own eyes. You know, you think you're, you're your own God. You're not in control. You are not your own sovereign. I am the only sovereign Lord. It is my divine sovereignty that is in control. So Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of the church, met Jesus, and he radically changed overnight, radically changed overnight, okay? So his Saul was his Hebrew name. Saul was his Hebrew name. But then, after Saul met Jesus, became a Jesus follower, God didn't do this. This is important that you know this. God didn't do this, but Saul decided that he was gonna go by Paul which was his 
Greek name. His Greek name. Now, we don't really know, other than, there's a couple reasons that that happened. That Paul said, listen, I I have a new identity in Christ. So I no longer want to be identified as Saul, the persecutor. That I want to be now known as Paul, the preacher of Jesus. And I, and I want to, also, he was, he was sent to the Gentiles and sent to the Greeks uh, to speak Jesus to them. And so Paul says, listen, I want to be known by that. I want to be known by Paul. Here's another reason, possibly, that Paul, or Saul, changed his name to Paul. Is that in the Greek, Paul's name means small. Paul means small in the Greek. And so Paul was saying, listen, not only does God sending me to the Gentiles or sending me to the Greeks to preach Jesus, and I no longer want to be identified as Saul of Tarsus or Saul the persecutor, that I want to be identified as Paul the preacher. But he also was possibly saying, this is just conjecture, he was also possibly saying, because Paul means small, I want to project and I want to show people that I became small so that Jesus can become big. That I became small and Jesus, so that Jesus can be, became big. John the Baptist said it this way. He says, I want to decrease, I want to become less so that Jesus can become more. That's a possibility why Paul went with his Greek name, Paul, because he wanted to identify, I want to be small so that Jesus can be big. And he realized, I was going against the grain. I was going against the purposes of God. I was going against the will of God. I was going against the plan of God. And Jesus showed up and said, why are you continuing to live that way? Listen, church, church, the more we go against the grain of God, you'll never experience the blessings of God. The more you work against God, the more you, you turn your eyes at God or do your, what you think is right in your own ways and, and, and participate in things that you know that you shouldn't when it comes to the, way, the ways of God. Listen, you're never going to experience the plan and the purposes that God has for you. So it's time to join God in the current of what God is already doing. You say, I don't, I don't hear from God. God seems silent. I don't know what God is doing. I don't hear what God wants to have me to say. Listen, it doesn't mean that God isn't working. And what you can learn and what I can learn in the silent times is this, is that even when God seems silent, he's still sovereign. And he's still working. It's what Alexander needed to know. And it's what you and I need to know. And it's what Saul of Tarsus needed to know. And he discovered, I'm no longer going against what God is doing. I'm now going to join God in what God is doing. James, the brother of Jesus, said it this way. He says, yet you do not know, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. For you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. This is, this is James' reminder of how short life is, right? And then look what he says. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. What James is, is telling us is, listen, it's, God, it's God's will. It's not yours. What Jesus had to pray in the garden, Jesus himself had to pray in the garden, Father, Father, It's not my will, but it's your will be done. Jesus knew, I don't want to go against your plan, God. I don't want to go against your will, God. God, I'm going to do what you want me to do, even though it is hard, even though you seem silent, even though you seem distant. God, I'm going to do what you want to do, because I know that even in your silence, you are still sovereign, and you're still working. And so a better way, James would say, a better way to say it is, if the Lord wills, we will live. Hey, listen, (laughs) you know why you woke up today? Because the Lord willed it. That's why. And what you do from here, this or that, and there's a lot of different thises or thats going to happen if it's the Lord's will. That's what it's supposed to be. 
So that's what he's saying. Listen, I want you to know, Daniel, hundreds of years, God was working. God was working. God was working. Even in the silence, God was working. So here's um, in the book, that one of the boring books that I read. <laughs> Between the Testaments, it says this. If we think of the civilization of the Greeks, we are fixed on their perfection of intelligent intellect, excuse me, intellect and imagination, displays of various forms of art, poetry, literature, and philosophy, the activity of the mind and the body, finding, finding its exercise in athletics, love of the beauty, and quick perception. Yet, all were under the divine providence. It was all made subservient to the spread of the gospel. This is what we can look in the history and the culture of the Greeks, and we can realize even though all of these things happened and it was their way of life, it was under the rule and reign of God to prepare the way for the gospel, which gives us our second application. Look to the logos in the scripture. Look to the logos in the scripture. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. When John wrote his gospel, John starts his gospel in this way, in John chapter number one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with, with God. Verse three, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And then look what it says in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory of the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John uses this, this term, the word, right? He uses the term, the word. You see it here. The word is a Greek word, okay? A Greek word for logos, logos. The Greeks would use that word, and they would use it for a divine reason, or in other words, the mind of God, a divine reason or the mind of God. So when, they, when, when John is, is writing his gospel, and he's writing it, and he's, he's describing, he says, listen, what we gain from the Greek culture what were, these, were these words. And these words describe, and they, he was given his listeners and his readers an opportunity to experience something. And here's what he was essentially doing. He's saying, logos refers to the divine reason. A divine reason that puts sense into the world that gives, or, into the world and gives order instead of chaos. So when John is, is writing his gospel, and he uses this, this unique phrasing of the word, the word, the word, he, his, his listeners and his readers were, were, were hearing and understanding exactly what he was trying to say. He was trying to say that Jesus came and he offered, a, he gave a divine reason and he put sense into a world and he gave it order instead of chaos. That's what Jesus came to do. And in, in this interesting thing of what, uh, what Alexander did is that he created, what, when we looked at it earlier, he created this common language, this common language. And this common language that they used was Koine Greek, Koine Greek, Koine Greek. And Koine Greek was this common language that everybody spoke. You see, when the nation of Israel was taken into Babylon, they spent so many, time, so many years in Babylon that many of their, their children and their grandchildren lost the ability to speak Hebrew. And so when Alexander came around, he wanted to, again, Hellenize the world, and he established a common language for the known world, which was this Koine Greek language. 
And this Koine Greek language is what John used when, in his writings. Matthew, Mark used in, in, in their writings. And, and what Paul wrote, and it, it, it infiltrated the culture, but it also did something that was so important. It gave common language to the world for, the, for this purpose, to hear the message of Jesus. That in the beginning was the Word, Logos, and the Word was God. And he, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And John said, and we saw him in all his glory. And he was full of grace and truth. Now, here's another cool thing about this Koine Greek. Koine Greek, even though it was a common language, now everybody in the world can speak, and it was because of what God allowed to have happen through Hellenism, through Alexander. And so the Koine Greek is a very detailed, specific language. It was a very, very detailed, specific language. For example, you have heard before that love in the Greek has Four, some say five different meanings behind it, right? You've heard agape, right? We've heard agape, okay, which is a unconditional love, okay? Then there's filio, right, and that which is a brotherly love, right, a friendship love. And then there's eros, which was a, it's a, where we get the word erotic, which was an intimate kind of love. And then there's storge, you know, which was a, which is a, par, a parental, you know, a comforting kind of love. And so the Greek language, Koine Greek, gave us so many different nuances to understanding what God wanted to communicate. For example, okay, so when we take that word love, if we take that word love, when Jesus had breakfast with Peter on the beach, I, I mentioned this last week, when Jesus had breakfast with Peter on the beach, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Remember this? Here's what we can derive from within that text to help us understand a more intimate, deeper level of what actually is happening within the communication between Peter and Jesus. Stay with me. When Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? He used the word agape, agape. When Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he didn't use the word agape. He used the word filio. Jesus asked him a second time, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I filio you. And then the third time, Jesus goes, Peter, do you filio me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I filio you. Now, you say, why does that matter? It matters because, here's, here's what we can learn from this. It matters because through Alexander, more importantly, through God's sovereignty, it points to a logos named Jesus, who's the word. But it also describes a Jesus who when he approaches one of his guys, says, Peter, do you agape me? And, P and Peter goes, Lord, you already know. You already know that I'm not at that agape level with you right now. That I'm still at this filial level. In other words, Peter's going, God, Lord, you already know what's in my heart. You already know what's in my mind. And I'm not going to deny that anymore. I'm going to be as real and honest with you as I can, Jesus. And finally, Jesus came. And here's, here's, the, good, here's, here's the application. Jesus said, I will, on the third request, I will meet you where you're at. 
Jesus didn't go, oh, come on, Peter. How come you can't agape me? Why can't you agape? I mean, I, I, I died for you. You know, I've forgiven you. We're having breakfast together. I mean, like you can't like get yourself up to the agape level. That's not what Jesus did. What Jesus did is he came down to our level. He says, I know that you're not where, I, where I ought, you ought to be. I know that you're not where you ought to be. But I'm going to meet you where you're at when it comes to your love for me. Does that make sense? Here's the thing. The only reason why we know this is because God used a goat or a leopard to rule for 13 years, to Hellenize a world, and to give it a common language so that we can learn from the scriptures the nuances of the kind of relationship that we can have with a loving God who meets us where we're at. That's Jesus. Isn't that cool? That's the best I got. That's all I got. No, I'm just kidding. Let me give you a third one and I'm done. Third one and I'm done. Don't lose your soul. Don't lose your soul. You know, Alexander was described as a leopard, right? You've heard this statement before. Leopards can't change their spots, right? Alexander was in pursuit of the things of this world. The goods and the beauty and the art and the literature and the philosophy and studying under Aristotle and, you know, so much in, in wisdom and intelligence and, and, you know, and he was pursuing all of the cities and all of the kingdoms and he wanted it all. What, what, but what was, he, what was he doing in the process? He was losing his soul. And we might think that a leopard just can't change their spots, but here, here, I got, here's, the, here's the lesson. With Jesus, you can. With Jesus, you can. And Jesus said it this way in Matthew. He says, for what good will it do if a person, uh, do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for a soul? And so, Lord is sovereign. Jesus is our logos that we look to in Scripture that we can see and discover and, fi and find that he meets us right where we're at. But don't get caught up in the ways of the world, just like Alexander did and, and many, you know, uh, uh, in that culture of that time during that t t uh, period of silence. Don't get caught up into that. Don't get caught up in the, the, the world will, will give me what I need and satisfy and fulfill. Because what Jesus is saying is that, like, if we do that, if we gain the whole world just like Alexander did, you're going you're gonna to forfeit your soul. Because one day, we're all going to have to give an account. And we're all going to have to stand and knee before a sovereign Lord. And if we're honest, what would we give? What would a person give? in exchange for a soul. So Paul says, listen, I want you to take a Greek thing and I want you to apply it to your spiritual life. And here's what Paul says. Here's what he says. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Yes. But only one receives the prize? Okay, there's no participation trophies in the Bible. There's none, it should be none in this culture either. Run, this is again, Paul is using a Greek athletic Olympic thing. He says, run in such a way that you may win. Then look what he says. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things so that they do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So Paul says, I want you to take what was given to us by this Greek culture 
And I want you to take that as a metaphor and an analogy. He says, I want you to run this race of faith. But in order for you to run this race of faith, you need to, just like those runners and just like those athletes, you need to exercise self-control. Because an athlete or a runner, they look at the ultimate prize. And for them, the ultimate prize was a wreath, a perishable wreath. But what Paul is saying, listen, what is offered to you and me is an imperishable crown that is offered to you and I. But in order for you to do that, you can't lose your soul by trying to win or gain the whole world. Because just like a disciplined athlete, you have to have self-control. In other words, in order for you to win the best thing, you have to be willing to lose the lesser things. Just like an athlete trains and prepares for the race, they have to be willing to say no to the things that they're tempted to put in their bodies that will only hinder them and will only hurt them in the race. And this is what is presented to us when it comes to don't, don't lose your soul because you think I need to just gain and win the whole world because at the end of the day at the end of the day there's nothing that you wouldn't give back in exchange for that soul that you lost in the race so run like the Greeks run to win there is no participation trophy in heaven Run to win. This is what Alexander brought. He brought it in the the world and God used it. Why? Because God is sovereign. And he brought his son to the world and John called him the Logos. He's the reason and he gives order to the chaos in our life. And don't be like Alexander who tried to gain the world. And he had an opportunity when the word of God was open to him. He had an opportunity to bow to Yahweh. And instead he decided to do what he thought was right in his own eyes. And he lost everything. Let's pray. So run, run to win. Let's pray. Lord, We can glean from your word of even though in those times of silence, Lord, you were working. You were working through this pagan narcissist who seemed to only care about gaining, gaining, gaining more, more, winning, winning, winning. And we can rejoice in the fact that you came. And you came to lose your life so that we as your sons and daughters can be adopted into your family. And we can enter into the race and run this race and win. And not have to be like a leopard whose spots can never be removed, but you remove those spots from us as we run this race with endurance and with self-control. You change us from the inside out. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you give us your word in such detail and specific ways to help us understand you, that you meet us You meet us right where we're at. And you're willing to do that. Because at 33, you died. But you didn't stay dead. You were seen, and you were seen full of grace and full of truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.